In our last session together, we talked about the holiness of God. I wish we had more time to, to dwell on that subject. I believe with all my heart, folks, if you would learn to come into his presence, if you would learn to worship him, even in your fear, even in your mental struggle, even in your weakness and hopelessness, you would find your way out of your your dilemma. As I said, some of some of uh, the struggle may be because of false guilt. Some of it may be because of true guilt. I know in my own life uh, there was real sin in my life, folks. There was real. Uh, issues that needed to be corrected. Remember the quote from George MacDonald? Where he, he, MacDonald said, when love loves someone, he must keep loving them until they become altogether lovely. My paraphrase. But he's saying the love of God doesn't just admire us. It's not some adolescent crush God has on us because he thinks we're cute. Uh, God loves us with a kind of love that longs to, to liberate us into the fullness of who he intended us to be. That's exactly what you long for, too. I mean, you long for it. You long to be free. You long to be who you were created to be. That's that's the very nature of being human. Uh, so this, this longing to change <clears throat> that can sometimes grow in us to a point that we just we, we hit despair. Uh, is a good thing. It's a good thing if you follow on and press through it and recognize that it is the call of God. I mean, uh, I, I know when I begin to feel that terrible despair over my own sexual brokenness and I, I felt hopeless and dirty and just wrung out with uh, trying to be to better myself and trying to keep promises to God and I couldn't keep promises to God. I didn't have the strength God didn't want me trying to keep promises to him. He wanted me to believe his promises, which he does keep. God serves us. We don't, we don't, we can't serve God until we let God serve us. But the fact is, uh, one of the things that, that the Lord began to bring me into in my despair was a vision of his holiness. I saw God as absolutely, unalterably holy. That's something I should have seen before my conversion. That's, some of, that's something that should have happened in me and would have happened in me if I had had the gospel preached uh, to me in, in such a way that pro, pro, proclaimed God's holiness more than it proclaimed God's desire to meet my needs. But you see, we have become man-centered instead of God-centered. The shift from God-centeredness to man-centeredness caused a great change to take place in our view of ourselves, both spiritually and psychologically. We have become the main issue of life in Western culture now. We've been raised by a culture that has so elevated man and so denigrated God that the incarnation and the passion and the resurrection of Christ is no longer seen uh, as something that we should be deeply thankful for and in humility cry out to God in, in gratitude for. God is too small and man is too large. This unbridgeable gulf that is between a holy God and fallen man is now seen in the modern psyche of many Western cultural Christians as simply a ditch that we can jump over by our own, our own volition. Not only is God too small and man too big, but God is not quite so good and man is not quite so bad. I'm okay, you're okay. It's the popular uh, way of thinking about our sin now. 
And so as a result of this, the Holy Spirit is going to have to bring deep conviction of sin even on the lives of people who have already had what they call a conversion experience. Now, there's a lot of talk in some circles today on grace. God knows we need to understand grace, but we need to understand grace. Some people of my acquaintance are teaching that the grace of God means that under the new covenant, there's no need even for conviction of sin. We're under grace. Everything's okay. You're totally forgiven. There's no need to be dealt with about your sin. And in every case that I have run across over the last 10 years of people preaching a grace message that is so full of grace that it does not even require that we repent, there has been secret sexual sin beneath it. Well, I know all about living a double life and having secret sexual sin. It nearly destroyed me and nearly destroyed all that's precious to me. And I, I do proclaim the grace of God with all my heart. But I say that one of the great characteristics of God's grace is his faithfulness to deal ruthlessly with our sinfulness. Now, for those of you who are caught up in false guilt and everything you do, you feel guilty for it. Even if you were a million miles away from the event, you feel responsible for it. I mean, war can break out in Tanganyika and you, you can be sitting in the middle of Texas and feel like it's your fault. Uh, that's a neurosis. You need help and you need, you may even need counseling to get over that. Uh, uh, and if, for those of you who may have a compulsive, uh, neurotic compulsive tendency to just focus on things until they take you over, like, uh, just, just thinking and thinking and thinking and introspecting yourself to death over whether you're truly forgiven or not, uh, you, you may need professional help or ongoing counseling to work through that. But uh, for those of you who have, if you've got sin in your life, folks, ongoing, repetitive, unrepented of sin, and you feel the, the displeasure of the Lord on you, and you feel the hand of the Lord dealing with your sin, then you're in good company. King David felt the same thing in Psalm 32. You ought to read it in the Amplified Version. He says, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon me until sweat uh, popped out and, and poured like water and my bones ached and I groaned and, and I couldn't get out from under that pressure until finally I confessed everything and unfolded it all piece by piece until everything was told. Then you instantly forgave me. So where there is true guilt, there needs to be true repentance. And so if you're under that kind of heavy load, it's the grace of God. We sing it all the time, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, found was blind, but now I see. But we don't understand the next verse. We sing it, but we don't understand it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace first teaches our heart to fear, then grace our fears relieved. So many of us don't know anything about a real encounter with God that deals with our sin and deals with our life in real flesh and blood uh, issues. We, we just have vague ideas that we carry around in our head. Leanne Payne says it so well in reference to the fact that real Christianity is incarnational. Christ comes into us and deals with us directly about our sinfulness and then beyond our sinfulness, invites us into real life and promises to be there with us 
to live that life through us and alongside us. Christianity, she says, is incarnational. We are linked to ultimate reality by his presence within us. The Christian mindset about reality is unique in that our way of knowing is rooted in Christ's presence with us. To any degree we depart from this understanding, we begin to substitute things for reality. We substitute religion for God himself. The letter of the law takes the place of the Holy Spirit's presence with us. Church buildings and organizations take the place of the life of the fellowship of the body of believers. Our own feelings about truth replace truth. Our ideas about God replace the real God. The sacraments, rather than being perceived and received aright, are thus either emptied of meaning or can become actual idols devoid of any presence of God. End quote. Now, many of us have grown up in church lives where we've been beaten by the stick of preaching instead of slain by the sword of the Spirit. I'll tell you, the sword is much easier to take than the stick. The sword slices through to the heart and slays us so that we can be resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, many of us have not been slain by that sword. We've just been beaten by the stick. You're bad. You need to repent. You need to repent some more. You need to repent some more. Do better. Behave. Come to church. Change your hateful, lustful, prideful ways. Suppress your feelings. Do. And so we end up putting on a facade thinking that that's real repentance. When real repentance is an encounter with God that causes us to want to change and we begin to put into practice a desire to obey Him by actions, but we're, we're not working for our salvation. We are manifesting a salvation that has come to us by encounter with him. Let me read something from Chambers on this that really clarifies what we're talking about here. Because a man has altered his life, it does not necessarily mean that he has repented. A man may have lived a bad life and suddenly stopped being bad, not because he has repented, but because he is like an exhausted volcano. The fact that he has become good is no sign of his having become a Christian. The bedrock of Christianity is repentance. Repentance means that I estimate exactly what I am in God's sight, and I am sorry for it. And on the basis of the redemption, I become the opposite. The only repentant man is the holy man. That is, the one who becomes the opposite of what he was because something has entered into him. Any man who knows himself knows that he cannot be holy. Therefore, if he does become holy, it is because God has shipped something into him. He is now presenced with divinity and can begin to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Jesus Christ's claim is that he can put a new disposition his own disposition, the Holy Spirit, into any man, and it will be manifested in all that he does. But the disposition of the Son of God can only enter my life by the way of repentance. Now this, this work of grace happens in us because the Holy Spirit begins to work in us an awareness of our need. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. 
first. About the same time God raised up George Whitfield and John Wesley in Great Britain, he was doing something in the United States in Northampton, Massachusetts through a man who was to become eventually president of Princeton University named Jonathan Edwards. Edwards ministered during a time when those who did not attend church or those who did attend church did so because of social reasons or political clout. Most of them were rich landowners with spoiled children who ran wild in the pubs and beer joints of the area. Edwards wrote later about this period that, quote, it seemed to be a time of extraordinary dullness in religion. Licentiousness prevailed among the youth and most of the populace, end quote. Yet another historian of that era said that Edwards' town was mild in comparison with the moral corruption of the rest of New England. Some letters that passed between political and religious leaders of that day cried out for constant, earnest, and serious prayer to be offered up to God for His mercy to be poured out in revival. Now, God answered that prayer for mercy, but not in the way you or I might define mercy. Let me tell you about it. One night, Jonathan Edwards was making his way into the pulpit of the local church where he pastored to deliver the evening sermon. It was a strange sermon, not anything like what he usually delivered. Some have said that the words to this sermon revealed a frustration with the worldliness and arrogance of the rich, materialistic, upper-class people whom he knew came to church only for show and personal gain. Now, whether that's true or not, nothing natural can account for what happened that night. Edwards was not a great public speaker. He had bad eyesight. The lighting in the church was only oil lamps. As he pressed his face down into his sermon notes to begin to read, with his voice mostly pouring into the page in front of him with no loudspeakers, obviously. Many may not have even heard the words of what he had been uh, communicating from his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But something of the spiritual reality of his words broke through as he spoke. People began to cry. People began to fall out of their chairs. But not only inside the building. What was going on in the building seemed to overflow, <clears throat> pour out into the streets as people passing by also began to be slain by the presence of God. They fell on their knees, weeping. For many miles around, people began to fall on their knees and cry out to God. This great awakening, which helped bring about the birth of the United States, was an act of God's mercy. Yes, it was mercy that caused people to begin to weep so uncontrollably that some people said it was as if hell itself had come to earth. It was not a beautiful sight unless you look from a certain perspective. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And then grace my fears relieved. To whom has forgiven much, they love much. It's because we don't really think we've been forgiven of that much that we treat the mercy of God lightly and are therefore not very thankful people because we really don't see ourselves as having been delivered from all that much. We weren't a Charles Manson. We weren't a Jeffrey Dahmer. We weren't an Adolf Hitler. So we're pretty good people that have added Jesus to the list of already fine accomplishments in our life. God is being merciful to us when he delivers us from that deception. Dr. Richard Lovelace describes clearly the dynamics of self-deception as related to the issue of our own sin. When he says, quote, 
our forefathers, our Christian forefathers, understood that fallen human nature was touched in every area by the deforming presence of sin. They believed that man has freedom of will, but that without the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, he is incurably resistant to seeking God. Unless God's grace, uh, apart from God's grace, man's best actions are still built upon unbelief, and even man's virtues are organized weapons against the rule of God. The reality is that unless they are moved by the Spirit, they have a natural distaste for the real God and an uncontrollable desire to break His laws and a constant tendency to judge God if they notice Him at all. They are largely unconscious of this enmity. It's usually repressed through unbelief and also through social mores. They are conditioned to pay respects to some vague image of deity but they really don't know or want to know the real God, end quote. Now, Mark Twain said once upon a time that, quote, morality is just a lack of opportunity, end quote. <clears throat> the seeming moral behavior of society is only an outward conformity to social expectations imposed upon us, and that at first opportunity in the cover of darkness, we are capable at least of doing almost anything. Whatever variations there may be to the extent of what we might or might not do depends on our selfish concerns over what the outcome might be if we were to be caught far more than any concern for honoring God's holiness by our obedience. Now this statement of Twain was an insult to the moralists and religionists of his day because they had come under the deception that Richard Lovelace had mentioned above Quote, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the depth analysis of sin was abandoned by the growing rationalist movement, which, because of its dim apprehension of God, began to divine, define virtue in ways unrelated to worship of God and began to affirm the essential goodness, quote-unquote, of human nature. During the same period, the church's consciousness of sin began to erode, along with its awareness of the presence of God, gradually Sin began, began to be known as things we do instead of attitudes. In other words, what Dr. Lovelace is saying here is <clears throat> that by the 19th century, our conception of sin was basically those social uh, uh, things that, uh, you know, drinking and smoking and cursing and carousing. and Well, certainly those things are bad. But to our, our, our Christian forefathers and forebearers, Real understanding of sin went far, far deeper than that. It was an understanding of the deep alienation that we feel toward God, the tendency to want to live our own life our way. And it dealt a lot more with the sins that are more socially acceptable and yet more spiritually damning, sins of pride, arrogance, self-deception, and so on and so forth. So when the heart begins to move toward the Lord and cry out for reality and for the Lord to come and, and really do business with God, Leanne Payne says, quote, There is a great beauty in the movement of the soul as it forsakes its alienation and its inability to listen to God and begins to come into a position of listening and desiring to be in union with Him. On entering that presence, no matter how twisted and bent the soul has been, toward its idols. It receives the grace to renounce those idols. As one's will is thoroughly converted and made whole in oneness with God's will, 
one has a new backbone, an upright and strong one, which is able to stand direct and vertical, receiving position with the Father and standing in that position of receptivity. End quote. Oswald Chambers said it like this, quote, As long as we are flippant and stupid and shallow and think that we know ourselves, we shall never give ourselves over to Jesus Christ. But when we once become conscious of our sin, conscious that we are infinitely more than we can fathom, either for good or for bad, then we will be more than glad to throw ourselves at his feet. The great question is whether we will give ourselves to him. Cultural Christianity has given us an option. It's trying to live in that option that causes us to become so sick. If you are in despair and pain and heartache over your own sin, grace is teaching your heart to fear. But the Lord knows you're not supposed to live there the rest of your life. There comes a time when after that grace has done its work in your heart that you begin to rise out of it and take your rightful place as God's son or daughter and begin to appropriate God's promises that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's a wonderful thing when a man who has been a murderer or a rapist or some other manifestly perverse person sees the darkness and evil of his sin and repents and cries out to God for mercy. But it is equally wonderful when a man or woman who has never been anything openly, socially abhorrent, he's been a good guy, she's been a good woman, they've attended church, they've tried to pay their bills and, and do the right thing and stay faithful in their marriage, etc., it's still a wonderful thing when they equally are given the grace of God to see their own desperate need and their hopelessness without God and, and, and fall under the weight of that revelation. And then grace, which has been teaching their heart to fear, then pulls the curtain back and shows them the remedy for their sinfulness, the cross of Jesus Christ. And they cry out to God for cleansing and mercy and begin to receive that cleansing. Now, God in his mercy allows the real nature of our evil condition to break into our lives enough to make us frighteningly aware of our desperate need. The more our technology and amusements and shallow lifestyles provide for us a safe haven from having to face this reality, the, the stronger God has to allow the darkness to invade until we are awakened. That's what happened to me. The Lord in his grace and mercy allowed the pressure of my double life to become so unbearable to my true self that my true self began to have a breakdown. It was the real clay that couldn't take the darkness and the, the, the counterfeit lifestyle and uh, caused me to finally begin to cry out to God for, for reality to come. So at this point, I'm speaking to people like myself, who are suffering under a constant feeling of dread and insecurity and disconnectedness with God due to the fact of undealt with, unconfessed sin in the life, and you, you, have, you are failing to receive forgiveness, not because God doesn't love you, not because God is not offering forgiveness always, but because there is, whether conscious or unconscious, a stubborn resistance in your heart 
to, de to deal honestly before God and let the Lord have his way in that part of your life. And the Holy Spirit will continue to deal with you and you will continue to be under that condition that David described in Psalm 32 until you break and yield to the Lord. Okay? That's one characteristic of this. But now, there is a completely opposite aspect of this. There are people out there, men and women, from all different backgrounds. You don't fall into the category I've been describing. You're not living in secret sin. As far as you know, you're as honest before God as you know how to be. You have tried for years to come to a sense of peace about your situation and in relation to, to God. And you have struggled and struggled and struggled to come into a sense of knowing that you're forgiven. And you don't, you don't fit in this category. But what concerns me is many times people who have this kind of insecurity, who've done all they know to do to, to, to be right with the Lord and yet still feel unforgiven, will hear the first half of this message on this tape and apply it to themselves in a, uh, a, a terribly self-abusive kind of way. They will feel that every word I'm speaking about the need to repent is them, and they will try to repent again and again and again. And uh, though they may not give in to, out, uh, to actual self-abuse physically, it's almost a spiritual uh, kind of crawling on broken glass to, to try to appease the angry God. This type person needs a completely different kind of ministry than what we've been doing so far. See, in this context, failure to receive forgiveness is connected with your failure to receive anything. And that is connected to your heart. That is connected to your receiving part of your, your humanness, which is your feminine nature. The essence of, of the true feminine nature is the ability to respond, to be receptive. And if you're unable to receive forgiveness in the sense that you can't hold on to it, it leaks out of you. There may be a part of you that needs to just get quiet and still and just ask the Lord to begin to heal that part of you that is your true feminine. That ability to truly come into a sense of knowing that you are equipped to respond and receive this great gift of salvation, this great gift of life from Almighty God. This also is connected to uh, a sense of, in, in another respect, of not wanting to lay aside our self-control. We want to serve God. We don't want God to serve us. We think that we need to do something. We have to do something. Well, the only something that we're required to do is respond to this gift of salvation. Redemption's story is a said and done deal. Christ died on the cross. It's something that stands outside time and space. It is something that is alive and real for that new convert to Christ today as it was hundreds of years ago. It is such a wonderful reality to see people lay down their self-control, put aside keeping their little masks and their little lives and their functional, outward, repentant, or so it seems like repentant life aside and just begin to become real, to become still and quiet. And as they gaze upon 
the perfect, almighty, holy God who is all good and all lovely and all pure begin to see themselves undone in his presence. Not with great fear and trembling, trembling, but with a sense of this is who I really am. I am not holy. I am not pure. And then realizing that the gift that was given to us through Christ Jesus on the cross is a gift that his heredity, his disposition can come into us. It is incarnational. As Chambers says, we are presenced with divinity. And we have what I call the man's part of incarnation, where we take that life of Christ that's been given us and we're able to work that out. So being able to lay aside a facade that we put on for ourselves and for others is one of the great places of coming into a place that we can truly be responsive to the Lord. It's really, if put it, put it, putting it one other way, we accept the true humility that comes from God. The finished work of Christ is something that we receive as a gift. We have to receive it in humbleness. There's nothing we can do except take it, receive it. Somehow we think that in order to be faithful and in order to come into right relationship with Christ, that there's some kind of faith we have to exhibit on our part. And we don't realize that faith, first of all, is incarnational. It comes to us through Christ. We receive the gift of faith. We respond to that gift of faith with our faithfulness. Then we can turn back unto the Lord. We can receive the forgiveness with joy. We can celebrate our smallness. We can celebrate our weakness and realize that our true self, the one that Christ died for, can live and reign with him. We have a solid sense of knowing that we have been forgiven because of the blood of Christ and because of knowing that we live and move and have our being in him who is our Lord and Savior. So often we get our thinking backwards in that we see our true self on the cross and we somehow are just in touch with our false self, our old man, our sinful nature. And the truth is, it's our sinful nature that is nailed to the cross with Christ. And it's our new man, our new creation, that is alive. And that is the personhood that we live out of. We are able to receive forgiveness in this respect by knowing that we have no control at all. We are humble servants of a God who served us first. He chose us before we ever knew him. He loved us before we ever even knew him. He died for us. So redemption's story stands outside of time and space and calls us to a place of being able to receive that forgiveness, of laying down the controls of our lives, losing face among uh, our brothers and sisters, and even losing face with our own self and saying, you know, Mary, you are a mess. You are absolutely devoid of being able to live a good life without eventually falling on your face. You can do nothing without Christ. And then incarnationally, I receive as a gift that free gift of life, that free gift of Christ in me. 
And out of that heredity and disposition of Christ in me, I know that I have been forgiven. And that is my strength to be able to stand on that firm foundation and solidly, knowing that I am forgiven, then turn to my brother and turn to my sister or maybe even turn to myself and say, you are forgiven and do it in the authority of Christ. You know, concerning this whole business of doing the will of God and always wondering if you have pleased him and what you need to do to please God. Jesus summed it up like this in John chapter 6, verse 29. He said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom God has sent. That's what you, that's the work you're supposed to do. And then on down a few verses in verse, uh, verse 36, he says, I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will under no circumstance cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so, uh, first John, you know, the, the apostle John picks up on this statement from the Lord Jesus. And in first John chapter three, talking about this very subject of not feeling forgiven, John says like this, he says, uh, in verse 19, this is how we know that we are of the truth and can assure our hearts before the Lord or in the presence of the Lord. Or actually, the word assure in the Greek here is persuade, to, to persuade our hearts before the Lord. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He says, if there's obviously something in your heart that's wrong and you feel condemned over it, well, God's even greater than you, uh, far greater than you, and he knows everything. He not only knows what you've done that you feel condemned over, but he knows all the motives underneath it and why you did it. But then he says, you know, uh, this is the same John you've got to remember in 1 John 1, 7, who says, if we say we haven't sinned, we call God a, a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and even just, notice that, faithful to forgive us, but it's just for God to forgive us, which therefore means, based on what the Scripture says, it would be unjust for God not to forgive. If forgiving is just, then unforgiveness must logically therefore be considered unjust based on the fact that the Lord Jesus bore our penalty for sin in himself. If the penalty is paid, then to require you to pay it is unjust. So he's saying that you are uh, able to rest in that knowledge. John goes on to say here in verse 21 of chapter 3 of 1 John, Beloved, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. In other words, if we've confessed our sins, we've done what the Scriptures tell us to do, we've done what God requires of us, then we can rest in the fact that God is faithful to keep his part of, of the promise. And whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And then we say, oh, but there's the rub. That's the problem, Clay. Uh, I don't always do those things that are right in his sight. I, I keep making the same mistakes. I keep falling. Well, I tell you, one reason you keep making the same mistakes is if you're living under that kind of insecurity and fear, the fear and insecurity itself would be enough to create a weakening of your uh, moral strength to the point that you're a pushover for whatever the devil wants to do to you. 
So the first thing you got to do is recognize, like Mary said, yeah, you are utterly weak. You are weaker than you think you are, and you're worse than you think you are. You think you're bad, you're even worse. You come to the point where you're so bad and so aware of how bad you are that you collapse under that knowledge. Then you're in a position to begin to receive. You become the hungry that Jesus talked about in Matthew 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Blessed are they who mourn. They shall be comforted. Uh, John goes on to say here, what are his commandments? Uh, you know, 20, verse 22 said, Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And you say, well, that's where I mess up. Well, the, the next verse tells you what it is that you're to do that is pleasing in his sight. And it's not a list of rules and, and regulations. It is this. This is his commandment, verse 23 says, that you should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. He that keeps his commandments dwells in him, and God dwells in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, first of all, that makes you have a conscience about these things. If you had uh, given yourself over to evil, you wouldn't care. This is what's so painful about people who say they've committed the unpardonable sin, and they get all focused on that and, and think, you know, they've, they've crossed some line that God can't forgive. As if God is some kind of small-minded legalist who can't wait to find some legal reason to cast you away. This is obviously a reflection of unhealed hurts from childhood wounds and mistreatment at the hands of male authority figures or religious authority figures or other things. But the fact is, you've got to go to the scriptures to find what God is like and quit living off of your childhood memories uh, to find out uh, from those memories uh, what reality is. You, you've, let you, you've let your whole definition of reality be based on your puny, tiny little experience as a child. I'm not belittling the fact that they may have been painful experiences and tragic experiences and, and experiences which badly wounded you and were unjust. And you can rest assured that the same God that uh, has promised to forgive you and keep you and uh, redeem your life is also uh, can be counted on to bring justice and correction to whatever unjust situation may, may have helped put you in this position of uh, insecurity and pain. But I'll tell you, the bottom line here is you've got to quit looking at your childhood and letting that be your definition of reality. And uh, say, well, Clay, it's not that easy. I didn't say it was easy. I just said you have to do it. Uh, you can do it, and there is a certain aspect of your soul there is your will, you know, you have a will. I've never seen a wounded person, no matter how wounded they were, no matter how bruised and, and mistreated they were, I've never seen a person yet that didn't have a strong will. It's amazing how weak a person can appear until you cross them. And then, buddy, they can get in your face like a circle saw. Well, if you can have that kind of uh, volition uh, toward protecting your own definition of yourself, from uh, this rebuke that I'm gently trying to give here, then you can also exert that same will 
toward believing the, the promises of God and exerting yourself against the enemy of your soul and get mad at him. Don't get mad at people that love you and are trying to help you. Get mad at the enemy who's lying to you, but more than that, he's lying about God. You know, in this instance, we've got to realize that we have to get out of our subjective view of what receiving forgiveness is all about. We think receiving forgiveness is feeling forgiven, that we need to feel that. Well, that's not the essence here. If we lose objective reality, we're going to lose our sound understanding of our own inner subjective realities of, of seeing our own lives in our, in, through the right perspective. Objective reality is redemption. Redemption story is the ultimate reality. Christ died for us. Christ lives for us. He's risen. He's alive. He is redeeming us back to the Father. This is reality. We have to keep that over and above everything. Uh, think about this. How can you redeem yourself? What are you going to do that's going to give you the check mark of forgiveness over your life? There's no way. Uh, we've said it before. You know, a garden can't weed itself. A ditch can't dig itself. Well, you can't forgive yourself. You can't pronounce yourself forgiven without ultimately receiving the mark of Christ upon your life. And all it takes is receiving that. Only your creator who made you, who fashioned you, who loved you, who formed you, knows how to come in and take and cancel that, that written, uh, the, not the written, excuse me, the, the, that sinful nature out of you, that fallen, broken relationship. And he bridges that through the blood of Christ. Now that blood of Christ is there for anybody, anybody who wants to receive it. Just because it's out there doesn't mean that you automatically receive it. Maybe you've been taught that in a vague kind of way that you can belong to Christ just by inviting him into your heart and you can just live forever with Jesus in your heart and that's how it goes. But that's not the full gospel message. The full gospel message is that he lives in you today. He's available today. You confess your sins today. He takes those into his body and in that holy exchange, as he takes those into his body, he in return gives you life and peace. He gives you the ability and the strength and the energy and the, the essence to have a full life that you can develop on your part. It's so vital to grasp the incarnational reality of the message that God is within us. Emmanuel, God in us. Receiving forgiveness is so vital to go on in walking with, with the Spirit and having a full life in Christ because without knowing you're forgiven, it leaks out. You have no solid foundation. Uh, you'll burn out. You'll continually be back on your knees crying out, Lord, I just don't understand why this is a continual process in me. Humble yourself. Get quiet before the Lord. Listen to what He says. Let his pronouncement of forgiveness come to you through the scriptures. You have to begin to let the scriptures speak to you because if you come from a background of abuse, religious abuse or emotional abuse, if you come from a background where you had a family uh, where there was evil words spoken against you, or you come from a religious system, a cultic system, 
for instance, where you were told if you leave us, you're damned forever. If you leave the group, if you leave the covenant relationship with us, you've broken covenant with God. And all this kind of demonic, manipulative, religious malarkey, you still have those words in your head, and you've got to replace those evil words with the words of God. Jesus said, he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life, and they will never perish, neither will anyone pluck them from my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them from my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. The Word of God says in Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything can separate me from the love of God. And uh, 1 John chapter 4 uh, verse verse uh, 16 says, We know we have believed the love that God has toward us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God dwells in him. Herein is our love brought to perfection, that we might have boldness in the day of judgment. How in the world can you have boldness in the day of judgment if you don't know you're forgiven and welcomed and loved? If you don't know, as Paul says in first Corinthians, uh, first uh, chapter of Colossians, that you are accepted in the Beloved. Who is the Beloved? He's Jesus. He's loved by God the Father. But Jesus said in John chapter 17 concerning us, he's praying what I call the real Lord's Prayer there. The other prayer is our prayer. But the Lord's Prayer, the prayer of Jesus is, Father, help them understand. Read it for yourself in John 17. Help them understand that you love them as much as you love me. And if you read the whole chapter there, you'll see Jesus is not just talking there about his 12 disciples because he specifically says, I not only pray for these who are with me, but I pray for all those down through the centuries who will believe in me because of their testimony. Help them all know that you love them as much as you love me. So this idea that God the Father puts up with us, but Jesus really loves us, baby, but God just kind of holds his nose and puts up with us. This is from the pit of hell. God the Father was in Christ the Son, reconciling the world back to himself, First Corinthians uh, uh, tells us, and Second Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And so you've got to begin to understand you are in Christ. In fact, there's not time enough here to go through even one-tenth of the verses that refer to our, our being in Christ and Christ being in us. Jesus is in us. We've been talking about that through this whole message. But not only is Jesus in us, but we are in Jesus. Now, we can kind of understand Jesus being in us. By his presence, he's God, he is, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, he's omnipotent. He comes into us and can live his life in us be very personally available to each one of us, and yet uh, still be available to all other things in the universe that call upon him. Uh, but how is it that we are in him? What does that mean? Because the Bible says we are buried with him in baptism. We are placed into Christ. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, the best way to illustrate that, and it's important for you to understand this, uh, because it's not only that you need to be aware of you being Christ being in you, but you need to be aware of you being in Christ. And that is that uh, 
It's, it, uh, it has to do with covenant. It has to do with relationship. For instance, how many of you don't like the idea that the Bible says, as in Adam, all die? Does that sound fair? Well, that's not fair. What does that mean, God? Adam sinned. Why am I responsible for Adam's sin? Why does God hold me responsible for what Adam and Eve did? Well, I'll tell you why. So that later on, in Christ, all can be made alive. In other words, everybody is in Adam, and Adam's sin opened the door for all of us to die. It's not fair. But let me tell you what else is not fair. Jesus Christ died and bore the penalty for all of our sins, and we are placed in Christ so that legally, just as Adam's sin, uh, we were we were placed in Adam, and Adam's sin was uh, uh, affected all of us. Now we're placed in Christ, so all of Christ's work is given to us. That's not fair either, but you'll go for that one, won't you? Yeah, I bet you will. We are in Christ so that whatever happened to Jesus, God legally uh, gives to, to us. Jesus died, so as far as God's concerned, we have died to sin. Jesus rises from the dead, so in Christ we rise with him, uh, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That's what we're talking about. Now, to illustrate this, I think one of the best ways that I've found to illustrate this would be to picture the battle between David and Goliath. You know the story. You don't need me to go through all the details, but basically, if you don't know the story, I'll just say this much, that David is a young man, goes up, sent by his father to check on his brothers who are at the battle front. The battle is between the Philistines and the people of Israel. The Philistines have a champion named Goliath who is almost nine feet tall. He's a monster. He's not only a monster physically, he's a monster morally, as all the Philistines were in their demonic practices. And they've come to taunt and challenge and uh, um, agonize the people of God. And they send Goliath out and they say, if you have a champion that will go out and fight this Goliath, and if you can defeat Goliath, we will consider... Uh, that the battle between Goliath and your champion will be the deciding battle. In other words, all of the Philistines will be in Goliath, and all of Israel will be in Israel's champion. Well, David shows up and notices that there's all this fear in the camp over Goliath, and David has a relationship with God. He has a living, vital, breathing loving relationship with the God of heaven. He's absolutely amazed that of all the men of Israel, there's not one person who is willing to go out and confront this demonic challenger of the people of God. In fact, if you'll read the story there in 1 Samuel, uh, it's David speaks of the covenant. He says, how is it possible that in all of Israel there is no one who will go out and defeat this dog, and when he uses the term dog, he's, he's using a, a, a term that refers to the fact that they have no covenant with God. They are, they live for themselves, they live in opposition to God like uh, 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 a dog would live. Uh, and uh, he says, how, how can you not go out and face this uncircumcised Philistine? Speaking here again of the covenant. Well, we have a covenant with God. This is a whole teaching in itself. There's not adequate time to address it here. But, but you need to understand, when Jesus gives us the directive to 
eat the bread and drink the wine of his communion table, he is reminding us to celebrate the fact that we have a covenant relationship. I have a covenant relationship with my wife. It's not an agreement. It's not a contract. It is a covenant. The meaning of the word covenant literally is an ag- uh, uh, an agreement sealed in blood. It is not just an agreement. It is not just a contract. It is something that goes way beyond contracts that humans can make. It has a spiritual, powerful spiritual connotation to it. God holds covenant breakers very, very guilty. Uh, God himself is a covenant-keeping God. Our relationship to Jesus was bought and sealed by the shedding of the blood of the Son of God, and it is that blood that we stand in. Uh, Revelation 12:11 says they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even to the death. It's the blood of the Lamb that gives us the power to stand against the powers of the enemy. And that's what David is saying here about Goliath. I have a covenant with God. This is not even a question about who could who would win this. Well, you know the story. Saul hears that David is going to go out and face Goliath. He's elated at the idea that anybody would be willing to do it. He puts his armor on David. It's way too big for him. He collapses under it. He takes the armor off and says, I can't. I can't depend on man's armor. And he goes out, and the Bible says that he picked up five smooth stones. And Goliath and all the Philistines were just laughing up a storm at the idea that this little twerp would come out to face Goliath. But you know the story. David says these these heroic words, I do not come at you in my own strength. But I come against you in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God whom you have blasphemed. It will be him today that delivers you into my hands. And the next thing they knew, a stone cracked between the eyes of Goliath and he went down on his knees. But here's what you got to remember. Before that battle started, every man and every woman and every person old enough to understand the stakes was watching with bated breath as David went out to meet Goliath. You know why? They were all in David. Whatever happens to David out there happens to them. If David dies, they die. If David wins, they win because they are in David. He is their federal head. He is their covenant representative. And so when Goliath was slain by David, it was considered Israel's victory. Well, the, can you make the application? Do you see that when the Lord Jesus Christ died for you, he was your federal head? He was going out to face your Goliath on your behalf. You couldn't do it. He did it for you. He, in, he, he, he drew you into his covenant relationship with himself. And whatever happens to Jesus, therefore, happens to you. He dies. You died. He was buried. You were buried. He rose again, you rose again. He ascended to his Father, you ascended to the Father. He seated right beside the Father, you, according to Ephesians chapter 1, are enthroned next to Jesus by God's grace and mercy. So you you are not only to remember that Christ is in you, but you are to remember that you are in Christ. In fact, 
after you finish listening to this tape, you need to cut it off and go somewhere and sit down and just go through your New Testament and underline every place where you see the word in Christ, in him, in Christ. Underline it. You'll find uh, you, the, your whole New Testament will be just full of these marks. And you need to meditate on that and dwell on that until it becomes a part of you. Now, recognizing that you are forgiven by a holy God who is holy but also has made a way for his holiness to be satisfied, for your sin to be forgiven, so that his love for you can continue to be given you throughout eternity, should make you the most grateful person in the world. And out of that gratitude, you should be able and willing and desirous to not only be thankful to God, but to show your gratitude to God by forgiving every person who has injured you in any way. So I find that kind of hard to swallow. Maybe I've been really mistreated by people and I don't want to hear this, this message. Well, I want to tell you, to the degree that you are unable to forgive others, to that degree you will continue to be tormented. We'll talk in our next session about why it is absolutely vital for you to forgive others. How to forgive others, how to know whether you have forgiven them or not, and how to deal with those things that seem so evil that they seem, from a human standpoint, to be utterly unforgivable. Let's just take a minute and pray about this. Father, we just thank you that we can receive forgiveness from you as a gift. And we ask you, Lord, for those of us that need a better understanding of how to receive, of how to respond to you, that you would come to us and strengthen our true self and strengthen that part of us, Father, in, in our true feminine that we would be able to be still and know and be still and receive from you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to know that our true personhood, that all that we are is in you, that we're able to receive the grace of God fully and that we can celebrate our weakness, that we know that this will not leak out, that we do not have to trust our feelings about feeling forgiven, but know by the promise of the word of God through scripture and through the living presence of Christ within us that we are truly forgiven, that we have a daily confessional that we can come to. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your provision on Calvary. Instruct us and fill us and keep present to us continually, especially in our minds and hearts, the reality of the true gospel of Christ. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.